Good to see you guys. We're back in action. So we have uh, one more epic, and then we're going to be off until January 10th. That's right. <laughs> so uh, for those of you who, I, I've met a couple people that were their first night was like two weeks ago when we kind of ventured down here, and I was like glad to see them back because uh, I think we started something two weeks ago that we don't have a real clean way out of. <laughs> We've kind of opened up something about God's character and his nature that is provocative for us, but I feel that it's gonna be very instrumental for many of us. And I, I wish that sometimes like, you know, tonight, today, I was like kind of studying and just meditating. I'm like, why couldn't I just do like love your neighbor verse tonight? You know, it's like, why do, why do we have to go into such kind of difficult and maybe controversial topics? And I just felt the Lord just impressed unto me that we cannot love our neighbor while still having the wrong idea of God. And so I feel that we're gonna be able to rewire a lot of things that we believe about God, things that we say, and, and let me just, uh, at the outright, say that we, we, we learn about God from so many different people, right? And so, and therefore, the most damaging thing that can happen to God's character is a misinformed Christian spouting his mouth. The most harmful thing to God's character is misinformed Christians who talk about God's character. And what I want to talk about tonight is the five biggest lies that we Christians believe about God's involvement in our life and the world at large. I want to talk about what he is and he isn't doing. And a disclaimer is that I, you might get offended tonight, I'm sorry, but I believed every single one of these lies. There's not a single one in here that I wasn't like, yeah, that's totally in the Bible, somewhere in the back, I totally believe that. I lived my life according to many of the things tonight I'm going to tell you are lies. And we're gonna cover a lot of ground. I don't know if we're gonna have things up, but I'm not gonna spend a whole lot on scripture because what I want to do is I don't wanna just give you conjecture. I don't wanna give you like clever reasoning. I don't wanna give you kind of some surmised ideas. I actually wanna to go to the word and say, what does the word say about this? We're not gonna hear from my wisdom. I'm gonna try and piece together things that I've learned, but also I, I wanted to go back to the scriptures. And so we're gonna cover a bunch of different scriptures, a whole bunch of things. If you guys have questions, feel free to Facebook me, whatever. And, um, but uh, if you don't agree with me, that's totally fine too. D don't take it from me, check it out for yourself on these things. So I don't need any angry emails if, uh, if you did not enjoy the topic. So here are the five things. Number one, it is impossible to be outside of the will of God. Number two, everything happens for a reason. Number three, God works in mysterious ways. Number four, God gives and takes away. Number five, God wants me to suffer. I believe these are the five things that we, I mean, there's songs written with these things, right? And it's amazing how like we, we have these and they become part of our vernacular and we, we comfort people in pain and we look at great loss and we somehow come up with one of these phrases. And it got me thinking like, wow, these phrases, like where is that? I believe that we cannot believe these statements, any of those, while simultaneously believing that God is good all the time. If we believe that we serve a good God who's unchanging, who's good all the time, I believe that those statements are completely contradictory to that truth. And all of this is gonna indirectly speak to the will of God. And just for a moment before I get into the first one, I just want to pause and just briefly give us a little context on, on free will as it relates to the will of God because it's so key. And so many people don't understand what free will is in context of the will of God. And so it all starts there. So we have to understand just the nature of where we exist having free will. 
And you can't un- to understand any of God's involvement in where he ends and we're beginning until we find what truth is in free will. And the truth of it is that God designed the world, he designed you and I to have genuine relationship with him, period. He didn't create us to worship him. He created us so that we would have an intimate relationship with him, a genuine relationship with him. And if that is the goal, that is where all of Christianity like holds on to. God doesn't need any more glory. He doesn't need any more praise. God designed us to be intimate with him, but it requires an authentic relationship. Let me explain it this way. If you're like, man, I need more praise in my life. I need something to tell me that I'm awesome. I build software. I could build you an app that every minute it tells you how awesome you are. <laughs> oh, Saul, you're so beautiful and so awesome, and I love your shirts. I mean, I could make something that would tell you those things every minute of the day. Would you love that? Uh, maybe you would. I don't know. <clears throat> would it make you feel like, wow, that is an authentic love relationship? You probably not. We can manufacture things to tell us anything that we want, but it's not love. The opposite is forced love. If I would have taken my wife and said, you're gonna marry me or I'm gonna kill you. Those are the two options. I don't think I'd, I'd qualify a relationship as being a loving relationship. She might go through with it, but she, I would never have her heart. And so we have to look at that. What makes free will matter, what makes love matter is actually choice. It's actually choosing that God chose us. He chose all of us, as we'll find out in the word. But the power is when we choose God back. That is when it turns into robot who's been manufactured, hardwired into worshiping an abstract God. That's when it turns it into, this is a genuine love relationship, and there's nothing like it. So free will has to have a choice. That is why there is good and evil. It has to have a choice. Meaning that there's an alternative option, that love freely chooses something and not another alternative. <clears throat> I wouldn't feel loved by Camille, she said, I'm married to you because there's no other option. <laughs> right? But isn't that what we're saying when we, we assume that we didn't have any choice in choosing God? Like, like, we actually have a choice. That's what makes love legit. And if there's no free choice, then there's not free will and it's not love. Choice enables free will. It's either God or Satan, love versus deception. Our salvation requires recognizing our sin, who God is, what he did for our sins, and choosing God in that. Romans 10.10 tells us that for the heart of a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. Salvation rests on our free choice. And I'm not, I'm not, you ever wind up with people who question like, well, what about babies that die? And what about people in lost villages and jungles and things? And and everybody gets so like crazy about, about, you know, things about people dying that don't know Christ. And I I, I don't worry about those things. Why? Because it it feels so clear to me that in order for there to be a love relationship, there has to be an ability to choose. And for there to be an ability to choose, you have to be able to recognize what you're choosing. I love my daughter, I can't wait for her to know the Lord. But what am I gonna do? Am I gonna panic every day, like trying to create stick figures with like some little pointy tail guy and like, you know, like a nice guy and like, do you choose Jesus? Like, it wouldn't work. She's just gonna be like, she'll wanna eat the paper, you know? So I don't fear for my daughter's salvation because I don't feel that she has a choice and I don't feel that, that, that God would create us to, uh, to not experience general relationship with him. 
I really don't. I don't think God does that. But I'm getting off track here. But salvation hangs upon our free choice to choose God or not. But in free will, since we do have a choice, there's consequences, right? Like all of us have the ability to choose something and and not choose something and choose poorly or choose wisely. And we live in a world that actually has consequences to people making good choices and bad choices, amen? And we're subject to other people's consequences as well. Like Eve, when she chose the apple, like it had a consequence for Adam. It wasn't like it didn't impact him at all. They both fell because the consequence actually crosses over to him and therefore sin entered the world. And the reason this is important is that free will gives us a justification and understanding about why there's bad things at all in the world. Yes, there's evil in the world because we know that Satan exists, but there's also uh, the presence of people making choices that have poor consequences, that have evil results, things that don't work out. So the bottom line is that evil and consequences of people exist in the world, and we can be very clear about what is and what isn't from God when we consider that. Are you guys with me so far? Awesome. Number one, it is impossible to be outside the will of God. Maybe you've also heard something like, nothing you could ever do will separate you from the, the will of God. Or maybe we say, well, it was all part of his plan, right? All of us kind of like, yeah, I've said that. Shake your head if you've said that. Because we all have. And actually, this is a misrepresentation of a very popular verse. Romans 8, 39 which kind of comes close, but it doesn't come close enough. It says, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. The whole concept of all, nothing could separate us from his will didn't really match up then, I'll show you in a second. But somehow people got the idea from that that we can't do anything to mess things up. I'm I'm living proof you can mess things up. (laughs) You can mess things up bad, amen? Amen. The good, the bad, the mundane, but people will will take that and they'll say it's all part of God's plan. And people will get angry with God about their own personal misfortunes because they're like, well, this is part of his plan. And I remember being at a stage of life is like, if this is part of God's plan, his plan kind of sucks. Like I just, I was like, I I don't agree that this is the best the creator of the universe could have come up with for me. But people will use the will of God and his plan to explain everything in their life. They'll say, oh, I didn't get the job. I guess it wasn't God's will. I guess it wasn't his plan. We broke up. I guess it wasn't the will of God to be married. You know, like we say these things all the time. People will make terrible decisions. They'll make awful choices. And then they'll lather it with God's great plan and great will, even despite it. And all the while, when those people, I look at them, they were clearly outside the will of God. It's like, I don't think God wanted you to do that. I don't think God wants us to be, you know, having felonies and, and stealing and, and doing all sorts of crazy things that we do, but we, we rationalize it by saying, well, it's all part of God's plan. I, uh, I caught on this at a really young age because I'm terrible at math. Anybody else terrible here at math? Oh, man, I feel your pain. It was just one of those things like that chromosome didn't come with math in it. So, but I remember being at a young age like struggling with math and I I actually told my dad, I don't think it's God's will that I am good at math. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I was being really clever. I was like trying to like, you know, get out of math class. He's like, that's not gonna work. (laughs) So, but I grew up, I believed as a human, as a human being that I was incapable of knowing the will of God. Or if I could, 
It'd be so abstract, it'd be void of all specifics. I just thought it's something that we humans don't get to experience and be a part of. And all I knew about that is like, I don't know what it is, I don't know what it entails, but all I know is I can't be outside of it. Amen? It sounds like a lot of us. And number one about that, here's, here's a couple problems with that, is that are we able as humans to know the, and verify the will of God? Look at the very first thing. Are we able to know and verify the will of God? Romans 12, 2 says this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's pretty self-explanatory, right? You will be able to test and approve what God's will is. I mean, that kind of doesn't get any more clear than that. So we can know the will of God, but our minds have to be transformed. People can refuse to transform their minds and will never know the will of God. Let me say that again. People can refuse to transform their minds and they will never know the will of God. It didn't say everybody's gonna know the will of God, but we have to transform our minds and then we will be able to know and approve and test the will of God. There are Christians everywhere who don't have a clue about the will of God. I just love you guys too much to not go into this to let any one of us be that. So knowing the will of God is available to those who choose, again, let's get back to our choice. Do you wanna know the will of God? Everybody uses the will of God, but do we really wanna know it? If we wanna know the will of God, we have to be willing to transform our minds. And number two, is, is the will of God specific or is it abstract? If you ask people like what they think the will of God actually is, you probably won't get a very clear answer. They won't be able to tell you specifically like, I think the will of God is da 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 I mean, it'll be this whole like life thing, everything hap, you know, it's like this very like amoeba-like explanation and you're like, can I get some scripture on that, you know? And, but I, believe it or not, the Bible actually says what the will of God is in several places. I have a full sheet. If anybody wants, I've like accumulated like almost all of the Bible verses that talk about, that says the will of God. I can email it to anybody. But it's not hard to find out about what it is. I'm just gonna give you a couple, just briefly. And it's Matthew 18, 14, it says, so it is not the will of the Father who is in heaven that any one of these little ones perish. It is not the will of God that anyone perishes. Meaning, it is God's will that everybody is saved. Pretty clear. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians, again, 4, verse 3 says, for this is the will of God. I mean, I love it when it like tees it up like that. You're <laughs> like, perfect. Your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And there are dozens and dozens of other verses. You are, and it's important to know like the will of God that, that we, we try and like cram our job, we try and cram like who we're gonna date and all these different things in there, what we're gonna do in life. And I can say that you can be a janitor or a corporate executive and you'll be perfectly within the will of God. It honestly doesn't matter. You can be equally in the will of God if you're a stay-at-home mom or if you're in the missions field. I think sometimes we get caught up on the doing and so much of what God says about the will of God is actually about being. That's good if you didn't catch that. 
There's not a single verse about who you'll marry. There's not a single verse in the Bible about what the will of God is for your job or if you eat sushi or not. I love sushi. But it is the will of God that all people are saved by the blood of Jesus. It is the will of God that you remain blameless and pure. It is the will of God that you would respond to life as Jesus would with joy. It is the will of God that you would have an intimate relationship with Jesus. So the the thing that gets back to, can you be outside the will of God? Yes, you can, why? It's the will of God that all people are saved. Are there people dying and going to hell? Yeah, it says it's the will of God that we rejoice always. Are you always rejoicing? Are you like batting a thousand? No, it's the will of God that we are pure and blameless and abstain from sexual immorality. I don't even wanna show hands on that one, right? Like. We have totally blown it when it comes to the explicit will of God. And for us to try and say that, that we cannot be outside the will of God, it's, it's pretty, pretty clear. So we can't underestimate our ability to mess up what actually God has positioned us for, for great things. But, but now God has given us the Holy Spirit. So you're like, well, is this a whole big fail fest or what is it? No, God has given us his Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us in our choices. If you are not hearing from God, and that's another lie that people say, I don't hear from God. The Bible says that my sheep hear my voice. And so the Holy Spirit interacts with us to help guide us in choosing the choices of life. And so that is where we are able to test and approve because some things are like, man, that looks like the will of God or that doesn't look like the will of God, but we have to have his spirit and we have to have our transformation of our mind to be able to do it. All right, next, everything happens for a reason. Another common one is there is no accidents with God. Everything happens for a reason. I heard someone say that this week. Just curious, everything happens for the reason. Anybody want to give the reason for AIDS? Anybody want to give the reason for cancer? Anyone want to give a good reason for the Great Depression? Anyone want to give a reason for someone being killed? If you have a good reason, like I'm serious, like I would like love to hear those answers. I can't for the life of me figure out how when you say that everything happens for a reason, you take horrible things like that, like the Holocaust, and you're able to pick and choose that this was for a reason, but this wasn't. I don't know how we all are able to justify and cherry pick the losses that we experience in the world and attribute some to God for a reason and some not. I really believe that all and any loss comes from the same source. The notion that everything happens for a reason was actually misquoted from Romans 8.28. We actually sang it tonight, which says this, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purposes. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. But our ears, our ears, like when we hear that verse, what we're really hearing is that every ha- everything that happened was planned to happen for me. That we look at like life is like, well, this is just how life kind of teed itself up. Or we think about that there's no accidents in that. Or that God gives us bad things in order to give us good things. That is a terrible theology. I don't believe a loving, all good God is gonna give you bad things in order to give you good things. Let me give it to you this way. Let's say you're like very hungry, thirsty, you know, you wanna be in ministry, you're a guy, and you're like, I wanna go into men's ministry. Under this logic that, that everything happens, you know, for a reason, that God is gonna use these things, it, it would be like saying, if you wanna go into men's ministry, that God's gonna send you to prison to give you men. 
It's like he's going to cause you to create a crime, uh, commit a crime, and then go to prison so that you'd have willing, available men who will give you their attention. (laughs) I don't think God operates that way. Why would God send you to prison in order to give you lots of available bored men? It's like God is so much more creative than that. And this belief is actually saying that God requires bad things in order for him to give you good things. This belief is saying that for me to be blessed, I have to endure hardship. I don't find that anywhere in the Bible. But here's what it is saying, so we can have a right interpretation of that verse. Is it saying is that bad things happen, period, right? Because free will, choices, consequences, bad things just happen. But God takes the carnage of that destruction and he turns it into fertilizer. I love that fertilizer is made of dung because it's so good, right? It's like, this is nothing but, and you guys can fill in the creative word that you guys you know, all know. And it's like, but that is what causes other things to grow. It's amazing that even in destruction that God will use it. And let me be clear, God doesn't have to use fertilizer to make things grow, but he's willing to use it if we got it. If we have destruction, if we have loss, if we have carnage, we have life burned down, God is totally able to use that and willing to use that. But in this world, to no fault of God, we will encounter trials, to no fault of God. And Jesus affirms this in John 16, 33, saying, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So when trials come, we can take heart because God does not stand silent in the sight of tragedy. That is the one thing I know is that for those who love God and are connected with him, God is never silent at any loss in our life. He never lets destruction go unanswered. He never allows a broken heart to go to waste. I firmly believe that. Isaiah 61, three, I love this verse, says, he exchanges our ashes for beauty. He exchanges our ashes for beauty. I love ashes because it gives me the conjuring of, like I was like a pyro growing up. Anybody just like light things on fire all the time? I'm lucky I have all my fingers, right? (laughs) We have a box of fireworks, this would be awesome. But I love it because sometimes I feel so many times that we burn our life into ashes. And maybe you're like that right now. Maybe like life is just in ashes and and God is saying, take those ashes and give them to me. Watch what I'll exchange for them. And it is a lie that God requires the destruction to bless. I just, if you get nothing else, God does not need destruction to bless. You guys still with me? God works in mysterious ways. God works in mysterious ways. That's, that's another way of saying, like, I don't know what the heck to say. It sounds really good right now. <laughs> or things that we'll say is, like, we can't explain why God does things like this. That's another way of saying that. At someone's tragedy, we will comfort them saying that God works in mysterious ways at their miscarriage. I actually was overhearing someone talk about that a stillbirth and this awful thing happened. And their response was like, well, God works in mysterious ways for it. Man, like, again, if this is God's ways, like, his ways kind of suck. <laughs> like, like, can we be real about that? Like, that is a terrible way to say that how God's working. And that verse is not even in the Bible. You know where that verse is? If you Google that verse, you'll find some clown by the name of William Cowpower who wrote a poem in 1700 <laughs> that starts, God works in mysterious ways. That's where we get it, from a poem. It's not anywhere in the Bible. But I've been trying to track, like, how, how is this morph? And I believe that it's come from Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, which says, for my thoughts 
are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I can see that. I can see how we can kind of like morph there. And maybe tonight you're like, well, these are all just words, like it's semantics, and and maybe there's a part of it that's that. But you know what, like, God created the universe with words. Our salvation, where the presence of the, the living God comes into our existence, into our hearts and our minds by words. So I kind of think words are a little important. But when we say that, that my thoughts are your, your thoughts, my ways are higher than your ways, I'm not actually thinking about like, God, I can't explain what you're doing. It actually makes perfect sense when you look at who Jesus was and what he did. It's saying that God's methodology is higher and more wise than we would do. Jesus proved this over and over again when he says, when someone slaps you, turn and give them the other cheek. He said, when those who curse you and persecute you, bless them. If someone takes your coat, give them your shirt. I mean, that, to me, when I'm like, man, your ways are higher than my ways, right? It doesn't mean that we have to be in this mysterious, like, unexplained area. Why? It's because there's a lot of mystery that we still have about God. I'm not trying to, to infer that we know everything about God. There's a lot of questions I have about God. Like, how did you create the entire universe with words? That's kind of cool. Can you teach any of us that? Like, that would be interesting to know how did that happen, I mean, these are mysteries, like, how is our heart beating right now? It's crazy, every one of us. We're alive, we have air to breathe. God, which did come first, the chicken or the egg? I mean, I got a lot of questions. (laughs) But I will say that as I search the scripture that God did not intend there to be any mystery about who he is and what his will is, like we think it is. That God is one who loves us and he had a mystery for time in this Messiah that was coming. There's a mystery for ages about this Messiah. That was a mystery for sure. But you know that the word mysterious is not even in the Bible at all. And it's almost all, there was the word mystery and it's in the New Testament a lot. And you know what the single thing it talks about when it's talking about mystery in the New Testament? This crazy Messiah that just came and took away the sins of the world. It now makes sense. Just gonna read you one of them, Colossians 1, 26 and 27. It says, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of his glory, of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. Nearly every time the New Testament even mentions and infers mystery, it is in conjunction with something that was previously unknown that is now known, which is the Messiah is alive. Mark 4, 11, Jesus tells people who believe that the answer to the mystery of God and the kingdom is now been given to them. It's pretty straight up. This is one of the great purposes of the entire New Testament is that most of it is explaining the big mystery that's been revealed to everybody. The New Testament's like, we got the mystery figured out and here's all it is, it's Jesus. Amen? John 14, 17, Jesus several times states that the Holy Spirit was to come upon us and reveal all knowledge. One can infer after that point that nothing would remain a mystery. After all, if you know the Bible, you know 1 Corinthians 2, 16 says, we have the mind of Christ. What I really think What I really think about this is that when we say God works in mysterious ways, it's actually a really lame way of saying, I don't care to wait on God and spend time in prayer for him to speak to me about this matter. 
When we say these things that kind of, you know, remove us and just pacify people with an explanation, I really believe it's a way to, to our failure to listen to God and to pursue him and ask him and seek his word on it. It's easy for us to put a responsibility on God for things that we don't understand rather than taking that time and investing our heart in ourselves. And when God's working in mysterious ways in our life, I personally feel that it's our own failure to listen to him for things he's already trying to explain. If there's one thing I do know about God, I believe God's pretty opinionated on all things I ask him. Most things I ask him. The issue is not God's opinion, it's, it's my willingness to ask him. It's my intentionality about asking God, God, could you give me revelation on this? God, could you give me wisdom on this? The Bible also says that anyone who lacks in wisdom, ask, and wisdom removes the veil from mystery. Next, God gives and takes away. And you're like, I already came prepared, I know that one's in the Bible, right? You're like, I've been waiting for this one. Another alternative for this one is, is God has disciplined me by removing such and such from my life. That's another popular thing, I've said that. And you might be referring like, well, we sing God gives and takes away in worship songs, right? A worship song can't have bad theology, right? And you're like, maybe you have like your finger already turned to Job because you already know it's in there. And the, that one actually is in the Bible. Job 1.21 says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Now, if there was ever any particular one scripture that has led to some screwy notions about God and his character, it's this one. Anyone who suffered loss has probably heard this. I told you the horrifying story about being on a missions trip and somebody's mother died and I'm leading worship for the group and the group thinks it's a good idea to sing that song he gives and takes away, blessed be his name. It was the most awful thing ever. Like as we're singing, it's like this is, this is terrible. What are we doing? Like worst ideas ever. I sang that song. Oh my gosh. But it's at every funeral, right? Every tragedy. God gives and takes away. And for some reason, people find comfort in believing that God is responsible for the loss. It makes no sense. The single example that we can give for God taking away, I think, is this verse. Now, don't get me wrong. I love Job's attitude because, remember, the will of God is actually that we would rejoice in circumstances. So with Job saying, no matter whether I have a lot or a little, no matter what happens, I will still praise the name of the Lord. But Job, actually, if you read the story, he said some pretty dumb things. And here's the counterpart to that verse. When we say that, he, that the very first, I mean, chapter one, right? He goes and says, he gave and he, he took away. And you, at the end of the book, in Job 42.3, this is what everybody needs to know. Because this is gonna be the antidote to that verse. Is this is Job regretting his words. Job in here goes on a regret trail of what he said, and he said this, I spoke of things I did not understand. Job is the author of, he gives and takes away, and later he's saying, I spoke of things which I did not understand. It's pretty powerful. I think many of us, we've spoken things we have not understood. And my goal is, is, is through this is that we begin to enliven our minds with the truth. 
And if you, if you read the rest of some of the attributes about Job, there's some kind of funny things. Like in chapter one, Job was so paranoid about this, the sins, the probable sins of his sons. No evidence, nothing, just in case he would go make sacrifices for the apparent, possible, potential sins his sons made. He was paralyzed, I think, in religion. Why would you go and make sacrifices day after day after day for sins that you were just, maybe they happen to be better to be forgiven than to be condemned, was his attitude. And if we look at also what he says is we kind of come to a realization that Job didn't have the intimate relationship that many of us have thought he to have. He said in 42.5, he says, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. So after Job's eyes have seen the Lord, he recants, I said things I did not understand. You guys with me? But the Bible's very clear on who's the giver and who's the taker. John 10.10, which is our theme verse here, it says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come to give life. And we say life, and you come to give us epic life. The enemy is the thief. God is the giver. And just a thought, there's just a thought on this one. If the, ch- the, the church will never see victory if we think God is behind our suffering. The church will never see victory if we think God is behind our suffering. Why? If we think God is robbing us, we won't even resist. Are you guys catching this? If we think God is the one causing our suffering, causing our loss, we won't resist. We will let the devil waltz in and plunder our families and our whole entire lives all while singing, he gives and takes away. God is the giver, not the taker. When we're fooled into believing that God is the, ta- is the taker, we are inviting the devil to come and steal from us. And then when he steals from us, we attribute the loss to God, not the devil. Remember the will of God also is that we rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, also Philippians 4.4 4 says, rejoice, I say it again, rejoice. Just intellectually, forget everything else for just one second. Intellectually, if God is behind your affliction, is it possible to rejoice in the person who is afflicting you? If it's a biblical mandate and the will of God that we rejoice in all circumstances, how can we blame the bad circumstances on God? I, 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 think, I think you'd be put into an institution if you could rejoice in the person that's causing you affliction. It seems like it's completely impossible. It, it, maybe you could, but can you love that person too? Can you rejoice in them afflicting you and also authentically love them? Sounds like a personality disorder. We'd look at that person like, you got issues. We would never condone that. Last, God wants me to suffer. Or another variation is, God is teaching me a lesson. Can anyone give me an example of good suffering? Do we have any good examples of like really righteous suffering? And I I ask people this, and I hear the logic go like this. God is sovereign, therefore suffering reflects God's sovereign will. Pretty much basically saying that um, because there's bad things, that suffering's a part of things, God's in control, God's sovereign, so therefore suffering is part of God's sovereignty, it's part of his will. 
And again, we look at the story primarily about Job. And the thing that annoys me the most about the story about Job is that people like infer like, well, God handed him over to Satan. God didn't do that. Like we should read the, the chapter. I'm not, it's a long chapter. We're not gonna teach it here. I'm just telling you, go read it for yourself. God did not hand over. All it basically was is Satan acknowledging that he was gonna take after Job, which is how different than today? Like, I don't know about you, but I feel Satan's got wide access to me if he wants. How about you? I don't feel like I'm, I feel like I have, you know, God's favor, his presence, and the presence is re- repelling the, the evil, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that I don't counter things that are being authored from Satan. Same thing as Job. But the thing about that is that we use the story of Job to justify suffering. And the kind of suffering that Job experienced was sickness and tragedy. Let's be clear that this sort of suffering is not found in heaven. And it is not something that God causes here on earth. Why? It's because Jesus came to deliver people in suffering, sickness, and death. Amen? So if Jesus came to come and deliver people from sickness and tragedy and death, then how could God the Father be the one who's authoring it? If God is giving sickness and death while Jesus is taking it all away, then their house is divided. And Jesus mentions a divided house in Luke 3, 25. says, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. That's why we have to be clear. Who's the giver? Who's the taker? There's a few reasons why God doesn't want to cause you suffering doesn't mean that we don't encounter suffering, but God is not the one who causes it. The first is that being the author of suffering is wholly inconsistent with the character of God revealed in the Bible. Jesus said that no one is good except God alone, Luke 18, 19. Moses said, God does no wrong, upright and just is he, Deuteronomy 32, 4. John said, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, 1 John 1, 5. Jesus did not teach us to pray and say, our Father, help us lie down and take all of the suffering that life throws at us. He said, no, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as is in heaven, right? Suffering is not found anywhere where God's kingdom and God's will is done. There's no suffering in heaven. There is no suffering in the Garden of Eden before man rebelled. We gotta look at what was happening in the Garden of Eden before the fall, and we gotta line that actually up with God's ideal circumstances. God's truth and reality is there. God is indeed sovereign, but he's not schizophrenic. He's not good on Sunday and then bad on Monday. He is 100% good all the time. I love it. Someone referred to as like, you know, kind of G, uh, Santa Claus theology, like naughty and nice list. You may get a present, you may get coal, you know, like one of these things. He's either 100% good or he's 100% bad. And the notion that God causes suffering is also a faith-killing doctrine, Amen. The notion of God-given suffering is a faith-killing doctrine. If you think God made you sick, unemployed, or defeated, you won't even fight back. Why would you want to fight God? I mean, if, if we think God is inflicting us, we'll just take there and believe the, the devil's lies all the while. And we can't confuse doctrine about his sovereignty with, with causality. And what do I mean by that is that God is the ultimate, you know, he's the reason that there's a universe, right? But if, um, if he created things, he doesn't cause all things. It's a really important distinction to make. And if I come to you, and, and I re- referenced cats last week, I have a love-hate relationship with cats. Um, but if you have a cat, and I come to your house, and I kick your cat across the room, right? Right? <laughs> 
Some of you would applaud and be like, amen, brother, in scripture, you know. (laughs) Who would you blame? Would you blame God or would you blame me? Of course. If you drove drunk and you mowed down somebody, right? Are you going to blame God or are you gonna blame the drunk driver? Are we gonna try and put God on trial? That makes no sense. Was it God's will or mine that your cat got kicked across the room? It was my will. (laughs) Was it God's will that you drank too much? No. We can't blame God for our mistakes. God didn't sink the Titanic and God did not cause the Netherlands to lose the World Cup. It's as simple as that. Some of you, that'll be the only thing you remember the entire night. (laughs) And when we believe that, all it is is just fatalism dressed up in Christian clothing. So what do you get when you combine God's sovereignty with God's goodness? You get Jesus. Jesus is perfect theology. When you combine God's sovereignty with God's goodness, you get redemption, you get miracles, you get majesty. His glory is not that he hammers people with suffering, but he has come to bring good and bring it good out of suffering. Satan is not the cause of all suffering either. You know, talk about people who are oversaved. I love that term. They uh, maybe over-spiritualize things a little too much. I'm all about being spiritual. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes we, we put the devil in areas that he doesn't belong, you know? It's like, if I don't pay my rent and they come and boot me out, I'm not gonna like, why is Satan testing me? Why is he coming after me? I'm, if I call Waterman like, we got some spiritual warfare, it's like I'm getting kicked out of my house and he's like, whoa, no way. He's like, are you currently your rent? I'm like, no, I haven't paid in six months. He would come and slap me so hard. <laughs> Literally. Satan does not need our help to inflict evil. There's a lot of people in this world that do a great job all by themselves about producing evil. It's <laughs> a good word, right? <laughs> and humanity inflicts a lot of evil upon itself. I think again with our free choices and our ability to choose that we, we're, we're choosing what comes in and what goes out but know that God is 100% good and if and when tragedy happens, we know that a 100% good God will not allow it to all go to waste. His redemptive purposes will make use of it because he cares for it, but he doesn't cause it. I'm gonna invite the band up. My whole purpose in this is not to rain on anybody's parade, was not to ruin anybody's favorite worship song, I know you'll never sing that song again the same now, right? <laughs> and you can change that. It's almost like they say, he gives and gives. and I mean, you can like change the words too. <laughs> like nobody says you need to sing it how it's on the screen. And don't like go and like pick theology battles with the worship leaders. They won't find that very loving either. So to be like, I once heard a message about that verse, you know, don't do that. And I don't want to discourage anybody's faith. My heart is not to you know, pull out all of the legs from the chair and, and let us kind of fall and not. That's why in order for us to really encounter God's character, if we really are going to encounter God's character, which is our, our sole mission going forth, 
is we have to break all the agreement, all the lies that we believe about what he is and isn't doing. Because remember, what we believe is what we receive. If we believe that God is inflicting harm, if we believe that he's mysteriously killing people off, if we believe that he's partnering with Satan destruction, then it doesn't matter what we read about how God is patient, God is kind. We're gonna see through that exact same lens. And so the first week, you're just like, hey, things are not all right with what we believe, and we believed a God that's been filled with lies by other people, and so our goal is to break down those lies and then to decide, what does the Bible say about all these things? What is God doing and what isn't he doing? And the purpose is to set us on a journey for who God really is. I wanna know who God really, really is. And it was, it was so hard coming, to like, coming into this nature because it is provocative and it is kind of controversial and it is kind of not that friendly of a topic. But I think if we really are in this not to play church, because I don't want to play church. Church is lame. I'm here for like Jesus. If we're not encountering the authentic God here, then we are wasting our time because there's people that can fill seats and never encounter God. I don't want to do that. If I feel that we ever turn into a ministry that we're just filling seats, eating pizza, and not encountering the presence, then I, I want to go away. It's not worth it. But when we're on a path to say, God, we believe you've made your word clear. We believe you've made your word intentional for us. We believe your presence is for us. We believe that you are intentionally pursuing and seeking us and that you want to be found, that you want to be known, that you've been misinterpreted, misunderstood, and misconstrued, and you want to set it right. When we believe those things and we seek after that, I believe that we're going to find it. I think we're going to change the way that many of us maybe have thought about God. I know it's, it's, it's happened for me over several years and, and I'm excited to go into this, this journey. But I want us all to, to know that authentic relationship always requires authentic truth. You know, truth, there, there's like fake truth. Anybody seen like the, the documentary Catfish? Whoa. <laughs> to Catch a Catfish, what is it called? It's the, the, the guy who uh, has like this relationship on Facebook with somebody who's like impersonating somebody totally different and he falls in love and he sets up like this meeting and finds this like, this like middle-aged woman like in her house that it's really awkward and really bad. But the emotions and the things that people experience in that fascination, it's real for them. It really feels real for them, but it isn't truth. It wasn't really authentic. That's the goal. The goal is that we might have to have a few things that maybe we've previously held on and things that we've believed, things that we've said, things that we've preached and be offended that like, wow, I gave bad information. I missed the boat. I misunderstood. I actually caused harm for someone's faith by misrepresenting God's character. I want us to be on a journey that we can all be in a place where we really know who God is and who isn't because that's the only thing that matters, amen?